Hi, I'm Dean. I'm a freshman. Um, tonight's reading will be Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the uh, reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as everyone was in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem and Judea, they said, For this is where the prophet wrote, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are not, you are not least among the, city, the ruling cities of Judah, of Judah. For a ruler will come to you who will be the shepherd for my people of Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem, search carefully for the child, and, you will, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star had seen the east guided them to Bethlehem. They went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened, the, opened their treasure chests and gave them gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Thanks for that reading. Um, how many of you, uh, any of you, ever lived in a country uh, that had a king? Anybody? I think so. How many of you would like to live in a country that had a king? I didn't think so. We have a problem with monarchies, right? It's originally a very American problem, our hang up of monarchies, but because of the United States of America and the English tradition with the Magna Carta, about 1200, it really became a bigger problem for people all over the world. So now when we think of the best form of government, we always think democracy, right? I mean, we're even trying to transform sections of the world into democracy that really are not ready for democracy. And we've been doing that for 100 years. Now, this is not really a political commentary. It's just a statement to remind you of how foreign the ideas that we just sang are to your ears and to mine. All the Christmas carols that we sang a few minutes ago, emphatically refer to kingship and kings. That's monarchy. And so, even though we sing them and we sort of hear it and we sort of get it, I want to suggest that we don't completely get it. Right? The three designations we've been working on for the last three weeks, this is the third, is prophet, priest, and king. The first two, I would suggest, are actually more gettable. You know, people know about prophets, people know about priests, 
And though it might not be your tradition to have a prophet in your church or a priest in your church to get it, kings, it's a little further out there, at least as to our experience. But I think it's interesting that whenever Jesus came into the world and when God spoke about himself, he routinely, perhaps more than any other designation, used the word king and kingdom. At the very beginning of the Bible, when God reveals himself, uh, to us in the creation story. He's the, this is a kingly word, sovereign over all creation. He created all of it. He owns all of it. And he directs all of it. It's his kingdom. Matter of fact, the psalmist describes it one time and says that the earth is like his footstool. That's a king image. Sitting on a throne, with a little stool where he puts his feet. It sort of diminishes our significance in a way. We're just a footstool in the throne room of the king. But clearly, from the very beginning, God is the king of the universe. And then, of course, God reveals himself as the ultimate king and monarch throughout the Bible. Uh, he uses human references to uh, refer to kingship. The Psalms are full of what they call kingly psalms or psalms of royalty. They relate to human kings, but actually messianically seem to point to Jesus as the king. So the notion of kingship is all throughout the Bible as it relates to God. <clears throat> Whenever uh, this country was founded many years ago, um, people came to these shores, and there were a lot of slogans for the colonists when they revolted against England. One of those slogans was, no, can you say it? Taxation without representation. Yeah, right? You learned that in high school. No taxation without representation. There was another slogan that you might not remember so quickly. And it went something like this. We acknowledge no sovereign here. As a matter of fact, when people got off the boat in Boston, not New York because that was Ellis Island, Statue of Liberty, and all that kind of stuff. Of course, Statue of Liberty wasn't there. That was later on. But when people got off the boat in Boston, there actually was a sign that said that when they got off the boat and landed in Boston, Massachusetts. We acknowledge no sovereign here. They were saying, this is a different kind of place. We got a king. So that's our self-understanding, right, of kingship. It's not the best form of government. And you know, we're right, I think, at some level. Because the problem with kingship and absolute sovereignty, right, is absolute power is absolutely corruptible, right? Um, in other words, there was, a, there was a, a famous guy called Lord Acton, and he said um, concerning that idea of absolute power, he said power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, just a sidebar. If you've ever heard that comment before or that quote before, you might not know what the context for it was. It had nothing to do with Israel's king or the king of England, even though he was English. It actually had to do with the church. It had to do with the Catholic Church when they decided that they were going to install this doctrine of papal infallibility. And Lord Acton said, are you serious? You're going to ascribe infallibility to a human being? What I want to tell you about that is power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. No human being should be designated as infallible. And he was a devout Roman Catholic himself. But of course, he didn't win the day. And the infallibility of the Pope continued to be an important doctrine uh, for the Catholic Church. So what's the problem with uh, monarchies? 
problem with monarchies is us. Problem with monarchies is sinfulness, right? The human heart. We are corrupted unbelievably by power and control, and we can't be trusted with absolute power. However, if there was such a king who could be trusted with absolute power, if there was such a king, monarchy would be great. It'd be wonderful. And I think that's why God, in the scripture, and especially Jesus, when he comes and speaks of his kingdom, refuses to set aside the notions of monarchy and kingship. Right? He talks about his kingdom. He had an opportunity to use a different metaphor. Okay? Let's not pretend here that there were no other op options available to God in communicating who he was. Um, there was a Greece democracy, right? A democracy in Greece that preceded Jesus. That could have been used. Uh, Jesus actually could have referred to Rome and the Senate and a group of people who were like the leaders. Or he could even have referred to Rome in the current form that he knew it. That would have been the emperor, right? But none of those designations are used. It's king and kingdom. And I don't think that's a historical location. I don't think he just chose that because other people had kings. I think the notion of kingship is deeply embedded in scripture because it speaks about God. And so Jesus steps right into that tradition and announces uh, his kingship. But before he announces his kingship and his kingdom, other people come, like the reading tonight, to proclaim his kingship. The we think three wise men from the east. If you're from the Eastern Church, by the way, you think there were 12 wise men. Nobody does. We think there might be three wise men because they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, three gifts. Who knows? Point is, there were people from the east. Some of them are called three kings, right? There's a three kings day. But the point is, when they came and they brought these gifts to Jesus, they were bringing gifts that were routinely given to kings. So this was sort of a coronation ceremony for the birth of the king. And when they came, they actually quoted Micah 5, verse 2, that in Bethlehem, a king would arise for the people of Israel. These fellows were curious. We don't know who they are. We don't know where they went. We don't know exactly where they came from. But they did come to announce Jesus as the king using the prophet Micah. And, of course, later we understand lots of prophets spoke that way about Jesus. When they came, they announced him with these gifts of gold, frankincense, and more. But, you know, more interesting than that, if you take a look at the book of Matthew, the entire opening section of the book of Matthew can be a description of kingship for Jesus. Um, if, you, if you have your Bible, or if you have your iPhone, and you're looking at your Bible on your iPhone, you, you can see the breakdown. It's real clear. Um, at the very beginning of the book of Matthew, Matthew describes Jesus and gives his human heritage as the king, right? He describes him and he says he's the son of David. That was really important in terms of human heritage as king. That's verses 1 through 17 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, they describe his divine heritage. In other words, when it's made known that this is the divine king from a divine source, namely God, spoken through angels. 
Then when you get to the passage we just read, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, you see honor that's paid to the king. These three regal visitors come and give gifts suited for kings to Jesus. And then after that, do you remember the story that follows that? The story that follows that is this. Joseph wakes up in the middle of the night because he's had a dream. And an angel tells Joseph, Joseph, you've got to get out of here. You've got to go to Egypt because somebody's trying to kill Jesus. If you look at the passage that follows the passage we read, verses 13 through 18 in chapter 2, what you see is hostility towards the kingdom. You see the king, Herod, trying to kill King Jesus. So it's hostility towards the king. So the first two chapters of Matthew are all about kingship. As a matter of fact, Matthew has a big thing about kingship throughout its entire uh, book. About these magi, though, who were they? We don't know a lot about them, but we do know they were from the east. And frequently people from the east who were called magi or wise men or various designations were frequently those who served in the courts of kings. So, for instance, when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament were in the service of the king, they were in the service of the king as counselors or wise men. And often, these counselors or wise men, they studied philosophy, they studied astrology, and they studied very widely. So it's quite possible that the reason these wise men knew about Jesus is because in the exile, when the people of Israel were taken into Babylonian captivity, Daniel and the others were part of the wise men brigade. And they introduced Jewish literature to the people in the east. That's about the only way we can figure that these wise men come and quote Micah 5.2. Because Micah 5.2 is a very Jewish tradition. So these wise men, apparently trained in philosophy and astrology and all the books of wisdom, have identified a king. And they say, when they arrive, we've come because we saw a star in the east and we've come to worship him. So these people who understand history and prophecy come to worship the king. It's, it's interesting also, the star in the east. Did you ever wonder what that was? That announced the king? Um, I have. I, I saw a um, very elaborate video uh, a few years ago um, that described exactly what it was, as if this person really knew. But they, they said this is exactly what it was. It was a particular alignment of the planets and stars and stuff like that that happened, they said historically, at this particular juncture in history. Now, you might say to yourself, oh, okay, that's an astronomist saying that's how it happened and there was nothing supernatural about it. It was a rather naturalistic phenomena. But the guy who was telling the story said, no, actually, it was ordained by God. And it was this astronomical occurrence that had not happened before and pointed directly to where Jesus was. We don't know. It might have been a divine star. It might have been something else. All we know is that the wise men came there because they were following the star and they found Jesus. But before they found Jesus, who did they find? Tell me. King Herod, right? They find King Herod. And who's King Herod? King Herod is a Jewish king. You know what King Herod did? He did what all kings did in Rome. There was an emperor there were other governors and other kings, and they all served Rome. What Herod did, 
is he played one group of people against the other in order to have power. He worked for Rome, and he worked for the people of Israel. Rome knew that it couldn't hold all this empire together unless it had surrogates wherever the people were, and they were kings or governors. And in Israel, there was two, governor, Pontius Pilate, remember when Jesus is crucified, and Herod. This Herod was uh, the king of Israel, appointed by Rome. He was also um, a, a descendant of Esau. Does anybody remember Esau, Jacob and Esau? That's his heritage, an Edomite. An Edomite king, descendant of Esau, the people didn't like him. He wasn't properly descended to be on the throne. You don't come from Esau's side and become the king. But no matter, the Romans were in charge and they appointed him king. And he worked both sides of the fence. He worked skillfully with the Sanhedrin, which were the Jewish leaders, and he constructed the most elaborate temple ever seen, perhaps greater than Solomon's temple, though we can't really compare it because we don't have any pictures. But he constructed this incredibly elaborate temple. Why did he do it? To get favor from the people, especially the Jewish leaders, because he wanted to be king. He also was a great builder. He would build things in Israel. And he was benevolent. But his benevolence was always to shore up his power. He created lots of jobs. He lowered taxes. Also, he could stay in power. Um, to make things easier on them so it would be easier on him. But he was also brutal. Incredibly brutal. And remarkably suspicious. King Herod always thought somebody was after him. <laughs> And he always thought somebody wanted his throne. And because of that, he murdered his wife. He murdered her mother. And he murdered three of his sons. All because they threatened him. Augustus, the emperor of Rome, said concerning Herod, it's safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. That's what kind of king he was. When Jesus uh, was taken by his parents to Egypt, do you remember that part of the story? Herod went looking for Jesus. And the way he was going to find him, he finally decided, was to kill all the children in Bethlehem who were two years old and under. Slaughter of the innocents. That's the kind of king that Herod was. He was clever. When the wise men came to him, he said, you know what, I want to worship this king too. When you find him, come back and tell me. Well, of course they didn't because an angel came to them and said, don't go back, you can't trust him. If he'd asked any Jewish citizen, they would have told him the same thing. But they needed an angel revelation not to go back. And so they left their own way and went back home. And King Herod not, never got a hold of King Jesus. Now, here's what I think is interesting. A lot of times what we do um, is we redesignate things because we don't think the designation is popular anymore. And I think if we were around then, we would have advised Jesus not to speak about a kingdom. If we could have talked to God, we would have said, you know what, God? 
King is not a good designation. Look how many bad kings there are. It's going to give people a bad idea of what a king is. Look at Herod. Do you want that to be the human example of a king? But in spite of that, Jesus used kingship. God used kingship. They used kingdom. Why? Because I think they wanted, among other things, to paint a contrast. They, the scriptures, the prophets, everybody, wanted to say, first of all, it's true that God is sovereign, absolutely sovereign. And second, it makes no difference how bad the sovereigns are around you. We want you to redefine what sovereignty is with this model. And so Jesus did. I mean, think about the contrast between King Herod and King Jesus. Here's one thing. There's a bunch of them. In God's coming through Jesus Christ, he dignifies our earthiness. God becomes human. Kings didn't get down on the level of their people. They didn't wear their people's clothes. They didn't eat their people's food. They were kings. They were exalted. Jesus says, enter my kingdom. He doesn't recoil from king of kings and lord of lords. But he says, I'll define it differently. I'm going to dignify your earthiness. Where does he come? To a stable? He announces it to shepherds. You know, apart from those few people who were there, did you ever think about the fact that the singular witnesses, apart from those few human beings, um, of the King Jesus were animals? Jesus is born in a stable. He comes into this world through the pain of human birth. Divine now. God, really God, and really man, could have come another way, but doesn't. He comes through pain. You know childbirth is full of pain, right? He comes through blood. You know how bloody childbirth is? I mean, if you haven't ever been there, it's a mess. I've been there for two of them. There's blood everywhere. And then when the baby comes out, they cut the umbilical cord and it's screaming bloody murder. It, it's a very human thing. Jesus was born like that. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords had an umbilical cord. He came out the womb of a woman. There was blood all over him. And at some point, maybe somebody whacked him on the butt and he screamed like my son did when he came out. Jesus comes into the indignity of humanity and pronounces it good. That's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, he also pronounces work good when he comes as the king. He didn't go into a kingly mansion after he was born. He lived in a carpenter's house. Joseph, and you know, there's all kinds of fun stories about what Jesus' life must have been like. But surely Joseph taught him how to build things. Um, and he experienced the kinds of things that carpenters do, like splinters in the hands and smashing of the wrong nail. Jesus walks into that world and dignifies work, and then, then he walks into the world of real people and says, I want you to be 
by chief followers. So he doesn't go to the politicians and the power brokers of the day. He goes to the fishermen, for the most part, and invites them to be his followers, to be his chief spokespersons for the coming of the kingdom. Oh, also, sometimes we overlook this. He did something that a rabbi would never do. And for the most part, a king would never do. Into his inner circle, he invites women who were outside everybody's inner circle back then. And they, too, become proclaimers of the kingdom. He shares the kingdom and asks people who share the kingdom with him to proclaim it who were tax collectors, the worst of the worst. He invites Samaritans, the, Mastai, the, the despised minority. He invites lepers, leprosy, uh, people who have outcast kind of diseases, and he heals them. And above all, you know what's so remarkable about this king? If the king's divine, if the king's righteous and holy, if the king is actually God, why would he invite sinners to be his right-hand people? But that's exactly what he does. He takes sinners, invites them into his kingdom. So if that's the king, the contrast king, to Herod the king, what ought our response to be? I think this goes to the heart of what we do every single Sunday. At the heart of every single Sunday is one word, worship. Uh, Some day you might encounter a president and everybody wants to shake the president's hand. That's a great honor. But you know what I've yet to see? And I've seen presidents personally. I've yet to see anybody when they approach a president, do this. You only do that for kings. And worship is that. It's bowing down to the king of kings. It's not having the honor of shaking his hand. It's saying, I surrender everything that I am. And my posture tells you that as I kneel in front of you. Jesus isn't the president. He's not just a dignitary. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So the proper response to the king is on our knees the second proper response to the king is absolute service. Um, you know, one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, and um, he writes those wonderful children's books called Chronicles of Narnia. Um, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader is a great one. Have you read that? Have you ever read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? You, you know who my favorite character uh, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is? Reaper Chief. You know who Reef Chief is? He's a little mouse or a rat, I don't know. <coughs> mouse, rat, rodent. And he's small. And he's really insignificant. But he's ridiculously verbose. 
and absolutely over the top when it comes to courage. It's like other people should have courage. Reaper Chief does have courage. And routinely, he'll pull his sword out like a big swashbuckler, and he'll take on anybody. And if you've seen the movie, uh, you can see the visual effect of this little gnarly little rat mouse thing jumping around on the ship, ready to fight the largest enemy. You know why he does that? It's not just because he's courageous. Look at what the context is. It's because, and he says it routinely, he's in service to the king. His whole identity is transformed by the fact that a little tiny mouse with a little itty bitty sword that looks like a needle is in service to the king. And it doesn't make any difference how small he is or how insignificant people think he might be or how tiny his talents. He doesn't care because he's serving the king. The reason I love Reepicheep is because I feel like him. Not the courage part, but the little part. I feel so small and so insignificant and so worthless sometimes. And every once in a while, every once in a while, I realize that I'm in service to the king. And it changes everything. Even for a moment, if only for a moment, I worship and I serve the king. So, as you go out this semester and go back home and then return and come back in the spring, remember that. If you're a Christ follower, be a reaper Be that insignificant little mouse who's ready to serve the king anytime, any place. And when you serve the king, you find your significance. Let's pray. God, I thank you for um, the incredible images of uh, the Bible. Um, I thank you for not shying away from the, the notion of king. And even though we've damaged so many of the images, Lord, when we re-examine them in light of who you are, then the image becomes new. So we pray that you will help us to see you as the king of kings and the lord of lords and redefine what it would mean to serve a sovereign which is not our native disposition. It's more than honor and dignity. It's more than being aware that you're in the presence of somebody who's great. It's absolute, total, face-down worship. That is, if we understand it correctly. So especially during uh, this Christmas season, uh, renew our understanding of you as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and, and may we worship you with every part of our being and find our significance in following you, King Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.